Welcome to It's Time on CSN International, the daily teaching ministry from the River Christian Fellowship in Twin Falls, Idaho. On today's episode, we'll be listening to Senior Pastor Mike Kessler as he teaches in the book of Mark. Each of the four Gospels has a different approach and different audience targeted by the Holy Spirit. The book of Mark is a fast-paced, action-packed tome focused on Christ's role as a servant. By studying the examples of Christ in the book of Mark, we can learn a great deal about what our life as Christians should look like and the heart of Christ. With our study on Mark, here's Pastor Mike. And we're going to continue on in our study in chapter 15. We've been looking at the life of Jesus through the eyes of Mark. Now we have four Gospels in the New Testament, each one of them recording the same event from a different perspective. Now, sometimes people will say, well, in the Gospels, for instance, one Gospel records that there was one man in Gadara. Another Gospel records that there was two men in Gadara. Others will report something else versus something else. So therefore, the Bible is not in unity. Well, friends, that's just simply not the case. And here's the reason why. Picture yourself and three other friends on an intersection watching a parade go by. Each one of you are all witnessing the same parade, but because everybody has a different viewpoint, every one of us has a different interest, oftentimes you will focus in perhaps on the color of the horses. Maybe somebody else will remark about the size of the float that's being drawn behind the horses. Everybody's watching the same event, but each person is looking at it from a different perspective. It doesn't mean that because something is left out that it didn't happen, And it also doesn't mean that because it's from a different viewpoint that it isn't true. It just simply means that from, I think this is great, the way God does that, allows us to have different vantage points of viewing the same event. Well, in your own life, you're going to also have a perspective of Christ. And what forms that perspective is His Word and also the events of your life that will help you better understand how to relate Jesus to your own life as well as those that you come in contact with. The world needs a Savior. Friends, we are looking right now, I believe, at a world that is desperately looking for answers. I pray that you get to them with the truth before people with a lie do. And one of the reasons why we know that people want to believe in something is because there's an emptiness inside of every one of us that longs to be filled with something that will give our life definition, meaning, and purpose. Oftentimes we'll turn to our friends or we'll turn to our own accomplishments, maybe our, you might say, diplomas of life, and somehow saying, this is what defines me. But the Bible tells us very clearly that what defines us is the love of God for us. The Bible says, while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning, is the extreme value that God places upon you. Now, sometimes we feel pretty good. Things are going well. We're kind of strutting our stuff a little bit. We feel great. And then there's other times we go through things in life where we feel totally disarmed. We feel totally ugly. We feel totally helpless. I I got great news for you. No matter what condition you're in this morning... The Bible tells us that Jesus died to save sinners. Now the Bible tells us, Paul says, as sinners, I am chief. This guy wrote a lot of the New Testament. And yet he recognized his dependency upon God for sustaining his purpose in life. Now many times people will accept Christ as their Savior and they'll go along for a while. And yes, I like the idea of going to heaven, not going to hell. 
But somehow the cares of this life seem to displace the relationship that God wants to have with us. We substitute it for other things and then we begin to get our identity from things of the world rather than from God. And the problem is it never satisfies. And so sometimes even as a Christian you can find your life frustrated because you bought into the lie of the world, you might say you've mingled the principles of Christ with the ideology of the world, and thus you find yourself looking two directions. Sometimes at Christ, when I look at eternity, and sometimes at the world of giving me a buzz to live each day. Well, the Bible here very clearly tells us the value that God places upon us. And so as we go to his word today, let's pray and just ask the Lord to bless these words. Father, we go to your word now, and we ask you that you would speak to us through it. That you would better define life for us. We have a very terrible time doing that sometimes. Because we think we understand what we see, but Lord, how many times we've all been fooled living in this world. So we ask you now that your your Holy Spirit would remind each one of us, God, of that dependency that we must have upon you. And how you want to work in our lives each day to help us and to see us through, no matter what the situation may look like. And so, God, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we know that um, Jesus was in the garden praying. And he was saying, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Jesus there was speaking of the crucifixion. He knew what was coming. In those days in Rome, in the Roman Empire... Crucifixions were along the roadsides of every major road throughout the Roman Empire. It was always to remind people, don't ever cross the line, death awaits you. And so no doubt when Jesus would minister, and as he would walk by, he would see the criminals that were crucified, knowing that it wouldn't be very long before he would be offered up as our sacrifice. Jesus was in the garden praying. The Bible said he sweat great drops of blood because of, of the stress that was upon him as he began to take on the sins of the world. Now, what is important is we remember that Judas Iscariot, for 30 pieces of silver, gave the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, Jesus' day planner, where they could capture him by night when the crowds weren't around. Judas, of course, knew Jesus' schedule. He was a man of prayer. He prayed often. And so the Pharisees then knew right where to find him when Judas told him his whereabouts. And so we remember they arrested Jesus. They interrogated him. He was brought before Pilate, then before Herod, then back to Pilate, and then ultimately offered to the people, shall I release to you Barabbas or shall I release to you Jesus? Because it was customary at that time that one of the criminals that was arrested as a goodwill gesture of the Roman government to the peoples whom they had conquered, it was, it was a, uh, a goodwill gesture to release to them one of the criminals. And so he said, shall I release to you Barabbas or Jesus? Well, we remember that they had went through the crowds and they told the crowds, scream Barabbas. We want Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a revolutionary as well. Jesus was a revolutionary. But one was changing the heart. The other one was trying to destroy the government. Jesus knew something. Unless the heart is changed, no matter what government you live under, you're going to have problems. So Jesus came to liberate people's soul. Well, the death decree was issued by Pilate. Jesus was marched out. He carried his cross through the streets of Jerusalem. We remember Simon of Cyrene was ordered by the Roman government to carry Christ's cross because through the, um, the, the beating that he'd received and all the other loss of blood and everything, he couldn't carry his own cross. So we remember he was commissioned to do that. And so we find in verse 24 of Mark 15... And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, 
casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Most people believe by this time that Jesus' garments had so many holes in them and were so torn up that this was more or less a mockery. Some people say, well, his garment was very valuable because it had no beginning and no end. There was no seam, you might say. That very well could be true. But I think by the time that they got done beating him up, I don't think it was much more than just a mockery in front of him. Interesting, as we go this morning in a few more verses, we'll go to uh, Psalms chapter 22. And interestingly enough, David records for us there the vantage point or the eyes of Jesus from the cross. It is one of the most astounding Psalms, I believe, in the book of Psalms because it actually records the words of Jesus and what happened to him on the cross. Most of us are very familiar with Psalms chapter 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We know that one. But Psalms 22 is equally as profound because it records for us the exact feelings that Jesus had hanging on the cross. And so we're going to find many of these same things that happened to him, this great prophecy of what was to happen. And this is why, because God wanted you to know that it was not a mistake that Jesus Christ died on the cross. It wasn't that if only Jesus would have zigged instead of zagged, he wouldn't have got crucified and he wouldn't have lived a ripe old age and died like everybody else. There's actually religions around today that teach that Jesus failed in his mission, he got caught by the Romans, he was crucified, and that's too bad. But that's not what the Bible says. He chose to live his life for us. He chose to lay his life down and he chose to raise it up again. Now, one of the things that we see here, friends, is it tells us that they cast lots for his garment. This is one of the things that should have perked up every single Pharisee and every single Sadducee as they knew the scriptures. Now, really quick, there there was two separate religious groups of the day. There was the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The, The Pharisees believed in angels and life after death and by being moral and following the commandments and everything like that, that you would go on and someday, uh, uh, you know, experience a life beyond the grave. The Sadducees, on the other hand, did not. They believed that when you died, you were dead. There was no more. You just kind of annihilated. And the, but, but the Bible was a very good way to live your life. It was a very moral way. It, it, it gave your life parameter and meaning and definition. But when you were dead, you were dead. And so uh, they, both of these groups were really in opposition to one another. They really didn't like each other. Because they had two different philosophies of, of, of ministry, two different philosophies of God, and two different philosophies of life. And they didn't like each other until it came to the destruction of Jesus Christ. Then the Bible tells us that they united forces with a common destruction of Jesus. It's interesting oftentimes that people that have been enemies will unite over somebody that loves God. Sometimes you might even find this at your work, when you become the focal point of maybe, for instance, people's wrath, because uh, you, you stand for something, you mean something. You don't go along with the, the, the unraveling of what oftentimes people do at your job. And so because of that, they'll focus their wrath upon you. Well, he tells us here that they gambled their, uh, for their lots, uh, they cast their lots for his garment, Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription in his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. Now this is very important, friends, because this was written by Pilate. In fact, another gospel records for us that they tried to get him to change it. They said, make him change it. You write on there, he said he was the king of the Jews. 
Pilate said, what I've written, I have written. By the world government of that day, Jesus was declared to be the king of the Jews. With him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right side and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Interestingly enough here, friends, that one thief, as we know from the other gospels, was very much soft-hearted towards Christ. The other was very much against God and against any repentance. We remember he said, if you're really the Christ, save yourself and us too. The other thief said, don't you fear God? We deserve to be here, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then this thief said, remember me, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. It's interesting that Jesus is saying, today, this very day, you will be with me in paradise. And so Jesus then um, has this conversation. Well, it's noteworthy. The Bible says that, that uh, the derelicts of society sometimes will go to heaven before those who are self-righteous. And interesting, the one that Jesus allowed to go into heaven first under the new covenant was a thief that was being crucified with him. Well, he says here, and those that pa- pass by blaspheme Jesus, wagging their heads saying, ah, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Now, we remember Jesus said, you tear this temple down, I'll rebuild it in three days. Jesus was not speaking of the glorious temple there that Herod had built, though some of them thought that's what he was talking about. Jesus was speaking of himself. And he very clearly said, you tear my body down, I'll rebuild it in three days. Now, another place it says that the Father brought Jesus back to life. And another place, the Holy Spirit the Bible says, brought him back to life. So we find the triunity of God. We find that, by the way, through the entirety of Scripture. Whether you're looking in Genesis or whether you're looking at the last chapter of Revelation, you find this part of God that has manifested himself in three personages. You say, what does that mean? Well, basically this. In the beginning, Genesis 1-1, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. The word for God there is the word Elohim. And the word Elohim literally means... The gods. In the beginning, the gods created the heavens and the earth. Now, immediately, if you move outside of the Bible, you begin to think Zeus and Hermes and Buddha. And, you know, all of a sudden you start getting all different ideas of who the gods are. Well, the Bible tells you who the gods are. It's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, always remember, whenever you you look at something spiritually for definition, always use the Bible for that definition. Uh, another thing, when you read the book of Revelation, for instance, the rest of the Bible does the commentary on the book of Revelation, so it's not open for anybody's interpretation, but the Bible tells you what it's about. Well, in the beginning, Elohim, the gods, created the heavens and the earth. Well, it's interesting, as you get down, God creates the stars and the moon, the planets, the animals. And then he says, and let us make man in our image. Interesting. God there, again, speaking of the plurality. Let us make man in our image. Now, something interesting, God's a triune God. And do you know what else? You're a triune being. That's right. You have a body, you have a soul, or you might say a body, a mind, and a spirit. Now, we know how wonderful it is when all those work together. We know what a problem it is when they don't. Now, some of you are saying, what are you talking about? You're laying in bed. Your mind says, you need to get up and wash the car and mow the lawn or clean out your garage. 
Your mind says, yes, this is very good. Your spirit will say, this is a good decision too. But your body says, stay right here. Isn't it funny how oftentimes our bodies will say things like, and if you've ever been addicted to anything, I need another drink. Your brain's saying, you should really stop. Your spirit goes, I don't know what's going on. And so you continue to drink. Your brain will say, this is killing you. But your body says, I don't care. The Bible tells us that we're this triune being that is out of control apart from God. The Bible said it's not within any of us to live the way we're supposed to live. Now you think about that for a minute, but if you live long enough to figure that that's true, you, have to, you can know it in your head. I know what I'm supposed to do. You look at your kids. Can't you just be good? The honest answer is no. Can't we just all go to bed tonight instead of having a fight? No. You see, there's not... You see it in children because they can't mask it. As we get older, we get better at it. But friends, nevertheless, we still see the same flaws in our children that we see in us. We just ain't as good at covering it. So we find this this problem within us. The spirit died within man when we rebelled in the garden. It's been dead ever since. And so our brains can be telling us one thing. Our bodies can be telling us something else. But the spirit, the very part of you that lives forever, has no voice because it's damaged. It's dead. Jesus came and died on the cross so that our spirit could be born again into us. Now he tells us this. He said with him was also the thieves and the robbers. He said, you tear this temple down, I'll rebuild it in three days. Jesus is claiming here his deity as well. And so he says, save yourself and come down from the cross. Thank God that Jesus didn't operate on popular opinion. For if Jesus would have came down from the cross, friends, all of humanity would have been lost. You see, Jesus' whole purpose was to go and die on the cross for us. He was the Paschal Lamb to take away the sins of the world. Now, what this simply means is this. All the things you've ever done wrong have been forgiven by the blood of Christ. And in eternity, it won't matter. Now, I know for some of us, we have made stupid decisions on this life. We've done things that have damaged our health, damaged our ability to think, maybe damaged our ability to love and to be loved. And thank God for communion. We talked about that last Sunday, where Jesus said, when he broke the bread, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Peter tells us that his body was broken so we could be healed. Now, there's a lot of elements in us that need to be healed. And not just when we have the flu or a cancer, but it's talking about our emotions and our heart and our feelings and our ability to love. And have you ever noticed how God in communion or during the worship service begins to soften our heart? Maybe people that we were mad at all of a sudden we're not mad at anymore because God begins to minister to us. And it changes the whole way we see life. That's what God endeavors to do. God wants to do that in your life. It isn't that God has favor and says, well, I'm going to do it for this person. But you know, you're kind of ugly. I'm not going to do anything for you. God doesn't do it that way. God sees us all the same and he has the same promises for you as he does for anybody else. And to me, friends, that's very, very encouraging because I used to think God had favorites. And I remember sitting in church going, yeah, well, that's easy for you to say, you don't know the life I'm going through. Friends, I do. And I can guarantee you something in this life, you will have tribulation. But you know what? Jesus said, rejoice. He's overcome the world. Now he tells us here, he didn't come down from the cross. That's what they were telling him to do. Prove yourself. Show us a sign. Well, likewise, 
The chief priests also, together with the scribes, mocked and said among themselves, He saved others. He himself, he cannot save. Let me tell you something, friends. The devil will still run that one by you all the time. When you're going through a trial. And the devil is very careful to remind you of all the people that you've helped in life. Yeah. Remember that person they needed real bad? Yeah, that's good. God used you to save them. That's great. Remember that person that needed something? Yeah, you helped them. But what about you? You've saved others. You yourself, you can't save. Well, you know what's interesting? The devil still plays that one over and over again. You've got to, again, sometimes be aware of the devil's top ten. Because he knows how to take advantage of you. Remember, he's had 6,000 years experience, at least, over us humans. To know how to lie to us, to deceive us, to tell us something, to tell you enough truth to slip you a lie. It isn't that... The other truths that the devil will tell you is what hurts you. It's the one lie that he will. It's like somebody walking up to you and say, Hey, would you like a jelly bean? Oh, uh, yeah, okay. Oh, I got to tell you, I was out in the shop and there was some rat poison. One of them fell in the, in the poison. I don't know which one it was. I just put it back up and put it in my pocket. But you still want a jelly bean? Well, I don't think I do. I, I might get the one that was dipped in the poison. Yeah, but the rest weren't. Well, friends, it ain't the rest that hurts you. It's the one lie the devil will slip you that will ruin your life. That's Pastor Mike Kessler on It's Time. If you've missed any part of today's episode, I'd like to inform you that we offer It's Time for free as a podcast download in the iTunes store. If you'd like a hard copy that you can keep and share, give us a call at 800-357-4226 and the operator can help you with that. Don't forget, It's Time to Grow. Pastor Mike's book on the Christian walk is also available completely free for you by calling that toll-free number I just mentioned. Tune in next time for more It's Time. It's time.